Hello and welcome to Money Matters TV. My name is Michael Barrell. I'm the Vice President of Strategic Development with the Sharp Financial Group. We're an integrated financial management firm that has a unique way of combining accounting and tax, wealth management, investment banking, um, capital solutions, and also um, business advisory to help uh, entrepreneurs and their families achieve extraordinary things with their businesses. Um, I am your host uh, for the Money Matters TV show, uh, Growth Stories, where we hear from entrepreneurs and advisors who share secrets and advice on what business owners need to know to grow. From time to time, issues involving life sciences, healthcare, technology uh, discussions may be uh, expressed on this show. Those discussions should not and are not um, viewed as financial advice. Moreover, since the show is pre-recorded and shown in a later date, some of those discussions may no longer be relevant. Please seek advice from your financial advisor before entering into any financial uh, transaction. I'm joined by my co-host, Rhea Bears. Rhea, Rhea is a VP with CBRE, a global real estate consulting firm. Rhea helps, um, uh, I'm sorry, Rhea is a chair of the technology and media practices in the Philadelphia office, where she works with high growth companies who uh, focus on and need help uh, determining their real estate strategy to support their business strategy. Um, Rhea also serves on the uh, outreach and program committees for Tech Girls, which is an organization that helps provide um, better access for middle school age girls to careers in technology. Hello, Rhea. It's uh, great to see you. Thanks for joining me on Growth Stories. Thanks, Mike. It's great to see you and to be here. So, Rhea, a um, lot going on since the last time we talked. Uh, you know, we've um, been dealing with this global pandemic for some period of time now. Uh, recent news announced that uh, a new vaccine is um, hopefully short-term uh, access and, and will become uh, commercially available uh, within the next six months or so. I guess it's going to give or take. It still remains to be seen. But I'm just curious, uh, from your standpoint, um, think a lot about commercial real estate and how that's been impacted. We're obviously here um, recording virtually, right? So many people are still working uh, remotely and not in commercial office space. I'm curious to see if um, CBRE is having discussions about the future of real estate and what that might look like when we return to whatever the new normal might be. Yeah, sure, Mike. So it's um, good timing. I'm right now currently putting on a... Um three-part series called The Future Is Now. Um, we've gone through the first part of that series, which was um, really dealing with re-entry safely for employees, and just put on the second segment of the series, which has to do a lot with when you get back into the office, what does it look like? Because this pandemic with technology has uh, fast-forwarded the movement towards activity-based work and more of a free address system. So just went through that. And then the next part of the series will be very much focused on um, how to create really a wonderful workplace where your employees can be innovators. Well, that's fantastic, Rhea. It sounds like you guys are out in front of it. I'm sure uh, many people um, checking out that uh, webinar series will find it very helpful. It uh, certainly will remain, uh, you know, information to come, I guess, but um, uh, being ahead of those changes is, uh, is, I guess, what you guys are all about, right? So that's fantastic. Um, 
we have a wonderful guest lined up today. I'm very excited about it. Um, but before we do that, we have a question from one of our viewers. And uh, hopefully you can help us answer this, Rhea. Uh, Nancy Waldron from Philadelphia would like to know if, um, if we see any changes in the commercial real estate uh, market under the new national leadership, I guess. You know, assuming that uh, President-elect Joe Biden takes office in January, um, what influences that might have on the commercial real estate market? Sure, that's the million dollar question. Great question, Nancy. Um, really, all eyes are on Georgia. Um, whatever happens with their runoff that comes in January and how the Senate ends up leaning um, will really drive what policy is. Right now, if Biden is able to make his policy changes, he expects to spend $5.4 trillion over 10 years. And a large part of that, if you take commercial real estate into that context, um, would be healthcare insurance, which would directly trickle down into healthcare and medical. And we'd expect to see some retail changing over as medical tries to get closer to their base, to their um, patient base. And the other thing is, I think it's $1.4 trillion is allocated towards R&D, as well as infrastructure improvements. And if you're looking at that, that's really going to drive office and industrial to recover. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, that sounds like good news. I guess uh, we'll wait and see. And uh, we'll keep our eyes on those uh, interim elections in Georgia and see what that does to the Senate. It's, uh, it's always great to hear from our viewers. We appreciate the feedback and the questions that are sent in. If you want to submit to a future show, here's how to send your questions to Money Matters TV. You can have your questions answered on Money Matters. Please go to our website, money-matters-tv.com. On our homepage, click on the banner on the right that says, Send Us Your Questions. While you're on our website, you can find information about our host and guests, as well as show notes and links about this show and past shows. Money Matters is also available as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, so you can listen to Money Matters while you're on the go. That website address, again, is money, M-O-N-E-Y, dash matters, M-A-T-T-E-R-S, tv.com so it is often stated that experience is the best teacher uh, combining the experience of an entrepreneur and the training to educate hopeful entrepreneurs is truly a force force multiplier uh, sharing the practical experiences of the ups and downs of starting and growing your own business combined with the ability to translate that into learnable lessons and bringing that to the classroom is what our next guest focuses on every day we're pleased to welcome Marilyn Anthony, Assistant Pre Professor at Temple University's Fox School of Business in their Strategy Department. Marilyn, Rhea and I are pleased to welcome you to Growth Stories. Thanks for joining us. And I am very happy to be here, Michael and Rhea. It's great to spend some time with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, what we wanted to hear today is really learn a little bit about your study and how you educate entrepreneurs. But first, can we take a little step back and, and go um, back to the time that you were raised and how, how that happened and, and kind of what were some of the guiding principles that you were raised under? Sure. I, I, mean, I think it's always good to reflect back on your roots, right, and see like where certain themes or um, values came from. So as anyone can tell from my accent, I am a native Philadelphian. My parents were both from the Scranton area. 
and my dad worked for the telephone company and with each promotion we moved closer to a major metropolitan area to Philly. So I actually grew up in the western suburbs of Bryn Mawr. And when I think about those formative experiences from my early days, I really have to look at two. One, my neighborhood, such as it was, was a, a small development on the outskirts of town, and it was bordered by a farm. It was a gentleman's farm, and that's where we played as kids. And I think about how powerful that was in just connecting me to the outdoors, and you'll, you'll hear later why that's important. But the other thing that had a profound influence on me was that for a variety of reasons, I ended up going to an all-girls school, a private school. And while I chafed at that uh, at the time, when I think about it now, I realized that during those formative years of, of junior high and high school, I was in an environment where women held all the leadership positions. We ran the student government, we ran the newspaper, we were captains of all of the teams. The principal was a woman. And while I wasn't aware of it at the time, it really influenced me to see the power and possibility and the competence of, of women. That's a great setting um, to really gain those experiences that you have today. And, and we will touch on that. I do want to hear a little bit more later in the show about some of the things you're doing to help empower future entrepreneurs, uh, particularly in women, um, and give them access and, and role models to, uh, to achieve that kind of success. Um, so that upbringing in the, outside of Philadelphia in the suburbs, and then you went on to study education with the idea of teaching literature. Uh, I think you mentioned that you, know, you, you have uh, an interest in reading and, and Spent a lot of time in the library and that kind of took you on that path. So talk about that experience, you know, initially thinking you knew what you wanted to study and do and kind of how that got you to where you ended up uh, uh, from a collegiate standpoint. Right. And, and I like to share this story with my students because often students feel like everybody else knows what they're doing and they're the only ones who don't. Um, but I was really motivated in my early education by simply a love of literature and stories. And I didn't think on a practical level of what that would translate into in terms of career opportunities. I love school. I loved studying literature. I love talking about books. And so I really went into my uh, college years thinking that that's what I would do. I would just always be in college. I would get my PhD and teach literature. But a combination of things. Uh, this was in the mid-70s and there were very few jobs. Um, and my advisor in school had the good sense and I had the good fortune to get that advice. And so I really started to consider what else might I be able to do with a graduate degree in, in literature and education. I did right out of school, take a job with an educational consulting firm, but it was so far from the classroom and so far from what I loved about education that it wasn't terrifically fulfilling. Around the same time, I just developed an interest in food and that was relatively new. I was one of those kids that really didn't care much about what they ate growing up, but I became very interested in food and saw literally a sign in a restaurant that I walked by every day on my way to and from work that said they were looking for 
apprentices. They were looking for prep cooks. And so I applied for that job and got that job and did it as a side, right? Just um, uh, while I kept my day job and started learning how to cook in a professional environment. Yeah. And, and how did you figure out that you really loved that side hustle or night job and decide to turn it into something that was more full time? You know, once again, I mean, I wasn't the most practical of, of people and I was really influenced by the fact that that job I looked forward to. I enjoyed the time I was there. I felt like I was learning a tremendous amount. I felt like my, my skill level was really increasing. I liked the environment. I liked the diversity of people I was working with. Uh, I liked everything about the time I spent there. And also, frankly, I felt that there was so much to learn about food that it would never be boring. It would, it would always hold my interest and there'd always be another, another frontier. Well, that's, that's extremely interesting. It's certainly a, uh, a path that you probably didn't plan on uh, coming out of, uh, out of the school uh, with the, the education degree. So you're, you're following this passion. I think it, you, you, you decide to go from a side hustle to full time at that point. I mean, it's, this is going to be the career path you're going to follow. You, that's kind of the decision you made. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I made the decision I wanted to stay in food. I did not think, I, I didn't plot out, then I'm going to do this and next I'm going to do that. Um, but what I found was my interest led to opportunity. And this is another thing that I really try to emphasize with students. You may not know where the path is going. It's not always clear what the milestones and benchmarks are, but let your interest really guide you. And so for me, that meant starting in what we refer to as the back of the house where I was cooking and over time moving to the front of the house, which was management side and also moving from small, independent, family run restaurants, fine dining restaurants to larger enterprises and then ultimately to a, a regional food service company where I now had exposure to a midsize company. We had 10,000 employees, and I moved from the operations side at various levels into business development, sales and business development. So almost inadvertently, I was getting a, a very broad um, education in how businesses operate. And yeah. so, I'm sorry, go ahead, Ria. No, all I was going to say is I'm, I'm looking back and laughing because that was really, Marilyn, your first step in courage, right? To, to turn to pivot from education into the food industry was a big, you know, it was a courageous thing to do, especially when you had parents looking on thinking, oh my gosh, what is our child doing here? And, and then you get into that business and you, you go from a small local restaurant all the way up to a 10,000 square or 10,000 person enterprise. Then it's acquired, right? You're acquired and you go from 10 to 100,000 employees. That's a big change. So at that point, I think I remember you went back to your roots a little bit. So what right. are you about happening? Yeah, uh, 
And this also was a great experience and, and many people have survived this now that you join a company and part of what attracts you is the company culture and you, you work your way up through the ranks, you get to know senior management, you feel very comfortable, then you're acquired and all of a sudden it's a reset. And for me, I had to decide, was I willing to invest the effort that it would take to make that climb again in now with an international company. And I decided, no, it, it wasn't worth it to me. And so I had the opportunity to go back to my roots, if you will, a wonderful opportunity, which ended up being life-changing. And that was to uh, work as the CEO at the White Dog Cafe in Philadelphia. Ironically, I had worked at the White Dog probably 20 years earlier as a cook. And That's so funny. I, yeah, I knew the organization. I knew Judy Wicks, the founder. Um, we had a very strong relationship. But coming in as the CEO was, of course, a very different perspective for me. And I learned a lot of things about um, succession planning, about management, you know, leading organizational change. But most profoundly, it really put me in touch with farmers and the food system and agriculture writ large. That's interesting. What, what were some of the challenges going from that large business environment and as the CEO of a, you know, a, certainly a world-renowned um, restaurant? Judy's, I think, recognized across the globe for what yeah. she's done in the restaurant business. But you know, obviously, a much smaller footprint. Was were there challenges in trying to apply some of the big principal business things you learn in a much larger environment, or, or were were those just automatically helpful and really helped kind of take that business to the next level? I think that there are principles that are transferable almost regardless of scale. And so scaling down just emphasized some of those, like the importance of relationships. And that's on your employee side, it's on your supplier side, um, throughout your customer side, obviously. Those are just heightened when you're on a smaller scale and, and frankly can be more rewarding because you really get to know people. Right. Um, in terms of bringing about change, I think those principles are pretty consistent too, that one person really can never effectively drive and institutionalize change. You really have to build a coalition of support. And, you know, I saw that in a 10,000 person company and in a couple of hundred employee size company as well. Was that hard to uh, employ in a founder run business? And Judy obviously was very close to the business. It's probably the first time she was handing over these kinds of decisions to an outside person. What were the challenges around that? Yeah, and, and I, I think every small business person recognizes that. And entrepreneurs feel that, right? When it, they've built something from the ground up and, and it's theirs, it's their life. It means more to them than it could possibly mean to any employee. Right. Um, and so how do you do that, that succession, that, uh, that transfer of power? And I think it's always a delicate uh, and personal balancing act. And trust is at the base of it. So for um, myself at the White Dog, I so firmly embraced the values that that business represented that there was very strong alignment there. And, and because of that, there was trust. And I mentioned that it had a profound effect on me and it, it really put me on a different path 
that eventually led me to the Fox School. And that path was discovering social entrepreneurship. That Judy is internationally known for her belief that businesses can, can and should do good in the world. And that was the first time I, I encountered that and it has stayed with me and it has shaped what I teach today. Yeah, that is an incredible background. Um, what There was a next step before you got to Fox. Can you talk a little bit about that and you know how you um, moved forward towards, you know, and how you met the folks at Fox and, and that opportunity um, outlined your next move, really? Well, there, there are two steps. And the first one was, uh, I, I guess I got finally that entrepreneur bug and really wanted to start my own business based on what I had learned um, previously from corporate experience, but also from working at the White Dog. So I did start, own and operate a, a farm to table restaurant in the northeast corner of Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and um, did that as a seasonal operation for a number of years. And the point there was economic development. It was a depressed area. And I felt if I could create a successful destination restaurant, it would bring money and jobs. And for me, most importantly, it provided a market for the farmers who were in that region without really um, opportunity to, to market and get fair value for their goods. And that work then made me interested in having a greater impact on more farmers. And so I went to work for a nonprofit, the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture, bringing my business skills to a nonprofit to help them acquire more skill in generating revenue and being less grant dependent and also expanding their impact. And it was while I was at PASA that I was introduced to the Fox School we hired them to do a feasibility study about land leasing. And we worked with the Fox Management Consulting Group who do live consulting projects for all industries with teams of MBA students. And I was so impressed by the caliber of students, by their thoughtfulness, their expertise, their knowledge, that I asked to stay on with the program as a technical advisor. So, you know, once again, I think this is that theme of interest leading to opportunity. And that was kind of an unpaid side hustle. You know, I, I had a full-time job and I was just doing that on the side and then was asked to manage some of the consulting projects that had to do with food systems or sustainability. And from there, then was asked to join the faculty. Interesting, the opportunity seems to be an overarching uh, theme, uh, Marilyn, in many of these things, right? Even from the side hustle as an apprentice chef uh, all the way through the corporate uh, experience. That, that's incredible. Um, so you're finally coming full circle back to where you thought you would start, right? Uh, in the academic uh, environment, teaching students. Um, certainly probably not something you plan to be teaching when you first started out, but based on your experiences, life experiences in particular, it, it creates a, an incredible opportunity. You know, we said in the beginning that, you know, it's a force multiplier, right? If you can have somebody who's teaching the students but has all, also lived those experiences, it creates such a more incredible and powerful learning environment. Talk about how you kind of trans 
transferred those experiences, your educational background to basically teach and, and how you're interacting with students and some of the things you're doing with them. Well, Michael, what you say is really what I'm, I hear back from students. I start by telling them that I have a non-traditional background and I, I'm just being totally candid. I don't have my PhD. I'm not a researcher or whatever. But students really respond to that because they're interested in in diverse paths and they figured they're gonna end up on some diverse paths. So for me, I think having the core training of education was of course very valuable. The subject matter is completely different, but I am really a believer in, um, in trying to develop skills and those are things like critical thinking and communication skills in students as part of their business toolkit. And um, it's just been a tremendous opportunity for me to be able to bring my experience to students, but also to learn more. I bring in guest speakers all the time. And so, and I've been writing case studies, uh, interacting with people who are doing really, really interesting, innovative things and bringing them in as relevant live examples to students about the possibilities that are open to them. And it's so important for students to see other people who are doing these. So I love the idea that you're bringing in experts. Well, who doesn't like to talk about what they do, right? And um, and students are so, so they're super curious. And this is an amazing opportunity to talk with entrepreneurs, founders, um, people who are you know, learning as they go and are very willing to talk about their experiences quite candidly. It's profoundly impactful. Yeah. And what, what are you currently teaching or what projects are you working on? Well, I teach um, social entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. I teach um, the capstone strategy course, which is a case study based course. And mm -hmm. from those two things, that's gotten me involved with writing business cases. Mm -hmm. And that's become very important to me because although 47% of MBA students are female, less than 11% of business cases feature women in business. And so that's a personal challenge to me to begin to change those numbers and amplify and elevate the profile of women in all types of businesses as leaders. Yeah, it's so important. There's still such a delta there. Um, we're going to leap forward and ask, what are some of the traits that you look for in entrepreneurs? Well, you know, it's often asked, are entrepreneurs born or are they trained? Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, I guess it's a combination because, first of all, from your personality, you, you have to be able to tolerate risk. And some people just aren't. So I, I think if you're risk averse, this is not going to work out for you. But mostly, I think these are traits that can be acquired. And it's really leading by example and looking at people you admire and, and really then teasing out, well, what did they do and, and how can I apply that? And I, I do ask students to really start from a place of self-reflection of, you know, what is it that, that they feel motivated to do and why is that important? How will that be gratifying or meaningful to them? And what is it about them that will make them successful? Yeah, that's well, a great point. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, Marilyn, what's one thing that you're reading or listening to now that you would recommend that entrepreneurs uh, 
tune into to get more experience. Well, I am a big reader, so I'm always picking up memoirs and um, and and books written by um, leaders like I like John Mackey's Conscious Capitalism, uh, founder of Whole Foods, and he has a new one now, Conscious uh, Leadership. But for students, I recommend audio because they're not such great readers usually. And so I, I really love Guy Raz's How I Built This. Fantastic, detailed stories with full of surprises about how successful people charted their course to success. Yeah, that's a great podcast. It really makes the experience real. Marilyn, this, this has been uh, very uh, entertaining. I thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and experience today. I think Rhea and I have really enjoyed it. I um, feel like there's much more that we could discuss. Um, so uh, thank, thank you to Rhea uh, for help with Growth Stories. The next week's guest is Lewis Crass uh, with Agile Management. As a reminder, you can download the podcast from iTunes and Stitcher, and as well as see the programs on our YouTube channel, Money Matters TV. Uh, thank you very much for joining us for Growth Stories.